this journey of my life is not only the most terrifying journey I've ever been through, but it was com- I was completely alone through the whole thing, like totally alone. Hey, fellow mortals, you're listening to Talk Dying to Me, and I'm your host, Lauren Daly. Do you remember where you were when the world stood still? For most of us, at least here in North America, it was somewhere around mid-March 2020. COVID cases were beginning to spread in Canada and the US. A global pandemic had officially been declared. People rushed to return to their home countries ahead of a planned closure of the Canada-US border. For lack of a better phrase, shit was hitting the fan. And as stressed-out Canadians created a national toilet paper shortage for no clear, logical reason, 42-year-old Jacqueline Robinson sat down with her daughters, 12-year-old twins, Mia and Charlotte, and 15-year-old Ellie, to explain why their March break vacation to Palm Springs had been cancelled. We were all booked and ready to go for spring break in Palm Springs. Luggage packed. All the girls had the bathing suits in their suitcases. We were going to do a little side trip to Grand Canyon. And my girls had the maps and like everything organized. Remember that feeling we all used to get before a big vacation? You know, back when we could travel. Bags are packed. Anticipation is high. You're literally counting down the minutes until you can get on that plane. Well, that's exactly the pre-vacation excitement that Jackie and her family were experiencing right before BC's provincial health officer, our Lord and Savior, Dr. Bonnie Henry, popped on the TV to deliver some sobering news. There was a travel ban. I didn't panic. I wasn't scared, but I was kind of like, okay, so now this is serious. And we've been hearing so much. It's like, I'm sure you were about this weird sort of strain of coronavirus, but it wasn't internalized at all. And I didn't become fearful. And having three girls being the mother, they look at me for kind of their compass of emotions. Jackie's not only a mother, but she's also a nurse. And we all know that nurses have this freakishly uncanny ability to stay calm amidst the most chaotic of circumstances. And as her daughters looked to her, devastated to be missing out on their spring break, and also terrified about the possibility of getting this new and scary virus, Jackie put on her nursing hat and reassured them that everything would be okay. I said, we're going to be okay. And I remember my oldest looking at me and she's like, mom, what do I, what if I get COVID? Because she had a sore throat at the time. And I said, hun, we're going to be fine. If you get it, the worst case scenario is it's going to be a terrible version of the flu. You're going to feel pretty crummy and we're just going to stay home. We're going to isolate. Mom knows what we're doing. Like, I'm just going to give you Tylenol, manage the fever. Worst case scenario, go to the hospital, maybe for some oxygen and then come right back home. So they were like, oh, okay. And I said, guys, we don't have any chronic health conditions. We're healthy. We're young. We're going to be fine. And I literally thought that. Less than 24 hours after Jacqueline reassured her family that everything would be okay, her husband Kirk woke up feeling not so great. And Kirk was like, I don't feel so well. I sort of feel a bit achy and I I felt him and I was like, you know, you feel a bit warm. But of course Kirk didn't have COVID. That would just be too weird and coincidental. They just talked about how their family would be okay. Out of an abundance of caution and still with her nursing hat on, Jacqueline threw her husband into their bedroom to self-isolate. 
and he was having a hard time. He was having a raging fever, super achy, starting to cough. And I was like, well, I don't like this, but I'm not sure what's going on. And then on the Tuesday, it was March 17th, I woke up and I was super achy and I had a low grade fever. As a healthcare provider, Jackie had priority access to COVID-19 testing and explicit instructions to get tested at the first sign of infection. So she made her way to BC Children's Hospital, where she worked, to get swabbed. That was like the first time I left my house was to get tested, really. It felt ominous already. Like going to Children's Hospital, there was people in N95 masks, and we were told to line up outside the facility, not even go in. And you could tell they were just starting, like the nurses are just getting trained. Like, do I wear eyewear? Do I need to wear gloves? Like, how are we going to streamline the testing? You know, all this kind of stuff. So it just felt ominous. While waiting in line to get tested for COVID-19, Jackie looked around and recognized so many of her colleagues, all with minor symptoms of cough and cold, runny nose, fever, aches and pains. It was the end of cold and flu season after all. So while the gravity of a global pandemic felt very real in that moment, Jackie still felt like she probably just had some other benign virus, one that would just go away on its own within a few days. A number of hours after getting tested, Jackie's phone rang, and the number showing up was the hospital. She assumed they were calling for staffing as so many people were getting tested and told to self-isolate. And I picked up the phone and she's like, is this Jacqueline Robinson? I said, yes. And she's like, I need to tell you that your result came back and you're COVID-19 positive. And I was just like, what? I was shocked. Keep in mind, this was mid-March, early days of the pandemic here in North America. And Jackie was amongst the first people to test positive for COVID-19 in the province of British Columbia. And I hung up the phone and I just kind of was like stunned. Didn't really know how to process it. They told me that public health would follow up with me in the morning. So I had to go tell Kirk, I'm like, hun, I have COVID-19 and this is probably what you have as well. Um, we have three daughters who I was currently making dinner for in the kitchen, you know, and they're older, but they're, you know, they're kids. Like they're, they just, my twins just turned 13 They're 12. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't be around them. I can't hug them. I can't touch them. I can't use their towels. And then I'm just going through all this like infection control kind of stuff in my head. For the next five days, Jackie and her husband, Kirk, locked themselves in their bedroom. Just take a moment to imagine being with your sick significant other in a closed, confined space for days on end. If that's not a test of true love, I don't know what is. Their daughter, Ellie, was a total rock star. She was only 15 at the time, but she took on the role of parenting her sick parents and her younger twin sisters. Because keep in mind, nobody else could come into their home. They had to do this on their own. She'd stand outside of our bedroom, like open the door with gloves and put the meals down on these like paper plates and then we'd throw them out. And she was just like so incredible. At that time, my one of my twins started getting symptoms and I was like, okay, well, I'm sure they've been exposed. So Charlotte did get quite sick with COVID as well. Within that week, all three of Jackie's kids had a mild version of COVID. And while that is pretty terrifying as a parent, 
Jackie was becoming increasingly concerned for her husband. But day six of Kirk's illness, he was not good. Like, I was really worried about him. And he's like, it hurts to breathe. Every breath hurts. I'm so short of breath. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, hun, you need to go see a doctor. So he phoned. He went to urgent care downtown. They took his oxygen saturation. It was totally fine. She listened and she says, okay, you definitely have COVID pneumonia, but your chest sounds clear and your oxygen's good, so go home. So he went home. And then the next day, he started turning a corner, started getting better. At this point, Jackie and her family felt like they had gotten through the worst of it, that things would slowly get better from here on out. Maybe it was just a really bad version of the flu. The only thing that felt different was the fever. It never let up. Like, it was raging. And I just remember getting out of bed all throughout the night. And the pain, like, I couldn't even sleep with codeine. It was raging aches. And so it didn't feel like the flu where I was in bed watching Netflix. My body felt angry. It felt novel. Like, it felt new. It's like your body couldn't crack the code. The day after Kirk turned a corner and started to feel better, Jackie began to feel worse. Her breathing became labored. She could barely string a sentence together without gasping for air. She became irritable and agitated, which is one of the first signs that your body isn't getting enough oxygen. I am like really short of breath. Like I felt like I had access to 20% of my lungs. So I got up to the bathroom and I was so dizzy. I was gonna throw up because I was just like this dizzy loss of balance. And I looked in the mirror and I was completely white. And I couldn't talk, I was so short of breath. And he, Kirk just took one look at me and he's like, I'm calling 911. Within what felt like five minutes, an ambulance arrived at their home and a paramedic fully clad in PPE came bounding up the stairs and into their living room. And he comes in and he's like, you're the reason why I came to work today. And he was just so nice. Like he said it in a really lovely way, but it was like his voice was so loud. Let's just take a minute to acknowledge and thank this amazing man who showed up to work that day despite enormous uncertainty in the face of a deadly, novel virus we knew nothing about, who ran into COVID camp, which is what Jackie called her home at the time, and who also had the heart to show some warmth through his PPE and demonstrate to Jackie that not only was he there, he was honored to take care of her. Healthcare heroes are real, my friends. I'm just like, I'm short of breath. I have COVID-19. And we told them, of course, before the call. And he just immediately checked my oxygen. And it was 67%. Okay, so for reference, normal oxygen levels are usually in the range of 95 to 100%. For all of you underachievers out there, you might say to yourselves, hmm, 67%, that doesn't seem so bad. At least it's a pass, right? Wrong. When it comes to the level of oxygen in your blood, 67% is a full-on fail. So I said, can you check my husband? So I just, I was so worried about Kirk still. So he checked him and it was 98. And then I said, check Charlotte, my little daughter who had COVID. And it was 99. And I was like, he put it back on me. And it was like 69, 70. So he put oxygen on me and he's like, Jackie, we're just going to get you, take some deep breaths of some oxygen, walk you down the stairs, put you in the ambulance, let's go. As Jackie, who is now in complete respiratory distress, gets ushered into an ambulance, she watches her family begin to unravel. So Kirk was just started 
bawling because he's just so stressed. Charlotte's coming out of her room going, mommy, who is this man? And he looks scary. He's wearing the whole, and you know, I'm got oxygen on now. And he's like radioing people. And it was just awful. And while she's watching all of this unfold, Jackie, nurse, mother, wife, the one who normally keeps everyone calm and collected, the one who offers reassurance and support in the face of adversity, all she can do in that moment is breathe. My entire being was just trying to slow my breathing down. And I was like in the zone where I was just like, I can't panic because I don't have the breath or the capacity to panic. I have to stay calm. Kirk's about to get into the ambulance with me. And I look at him and I'm like, hun, stay here. You got to deal with the girls. And he was just crying. I looked at him when he was crying. And I remember saying, stop, I can't take this right now. And that's strange for me. Like I welcome vulnerability. I love that when he's sensitive. But at the time it was like, I can't take that on right now. I'm just holding it together. And I didn't really allow him any space to feel, which is unusual to me. But at the time, it was just so urgent. What was like the last thing you said to your husband before the ambulance doors closed? I just said, I'll see you in 10 minutes. Jackie had no idea that it would be two long weeks before she'd see her family again. Upon arriving to Vancouver General Hospital, Jackie was rushed into an isolation room in the emergency department, which is pretty much like being in a giant fishbowl. Here I am in emergency with about 20 people of PPE, like standing outside my isolation window. And I looked at all these eyes and they're all staring at me and I could just tell they were all talking. Who goes in when? How are we going to don and off our PPE? They'd all been practicing for this moment. So there was just like this dance of people moving in in my room. Remember, Jackie was one of the first cases of severe COVID-19 in British Columbia. And we were all still trying to figure this virus out. There was so much uncertainty. And the people surrounding Jackie in that moment, the people who were there to care for her, while absolute heroes by any standard, were also afraid of her. They carried themselves with a palpable unease, an anxiety that Jackie could sense. It's one thing to be alone when you're sick, but to be alone and surrounded by strangers who are afraid to breathe the same air as you brings the feeling of isolation to a whole new heartbreaking level. There was no one explaining to me what they were doing. So they're all outside discussing and being a healthcare worker, I needed to hear what they were saying to offer me some reassurance that like what was going on. And because there was like one person in, one person out kind of doing this dance, I just felt like completely stranded. There was just like this sea of craziness and um, I just felt like I was drowning. I just needed one person almost to be holding my hand and saying, I I see that you're scared right now. Jackie's husband, Kirk, is usually that person who holds her hand during times of crisis. And at this point, he was desperately trying to be with her. I was just on the phone the whole time with Kirk. That was my only outlet to come, was to have that conversation with, my, you know, my husband. So basically I just spent the whole time texting him. He said, hun, I'm trying to get in. They won't let me in. They won't let me in. I was like, they have to let you in. I can't do this by myself. Jackie and Kirk share the kind of timeless love you read about in a Nicholas Sparks novel. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. Jackie was only 18 when she and Kirk met at university. 
She was a young, beautiful dancer. He was a musician who played drums at various campus events. And it was pretty much love at first sight. You know, I actually fell in love with him watching him play drums. It was actually my roommate who spotted him. And she actually was walking, you know, with me to class. And she's like, have you seen the drummer? And I'm like, what? She's like, he's totally your type. It wasn't long before Jackie and Kirk were married, and soon after that, they had three babies within three years, which, quite frankly, sounds impossible. But they did it, and they did it well. And through it all, through all of the ups and downs that come with a 20-year relationship, they grew together and cultivated a strong sense of family grounded in their love. So you can imagine how earth-shattering it would be to be forced out of the emergency department where your wife sat scared and gasping for breath. Kirk did everything he could to be with Jackie. And after being asked to leave the hospital a number of times, he went and sat in his car outside the building, just waiting, desperate to remain as close to her as possible. He ended up outside ICU, and he just waited outside ICU for about six hours, crying. They wondered if they should call a social worker. They ended up calling security because he wouldn't leave. And it was just like, oh, so devastating because that's not a security call, you know? So at this point, Jackie is in the intensive care unit. Her condition was very unstable. She required close monitoring. And her medical team anticipated that things were likely to get much worse for Jackie in short order. It was like two in the morning. And one of my doctors, he just said, your blood is showing that we can't get enough oxygen to you right now. Like we're trying, Jackie, but it's just all your gases and your blood work are showing you're not doing well. We need to put you on a ventilator. And I was like, I, I just couldn't believe it. And he's like, we need to do it quickly. And he said, take some time to call your husband and explain it to him. And he gave me about like 30 minutes. As someone who spends a fair bit of time in the ICU as a palliative care doctor, I can say with some confidence that the type of care received in this setting, like intubation and ventilation, for example, are some of the most misunderstood parts of medicine. These interventions are intense. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why they call it intensive care. I can't even begin to find the words to accurately describe a stay in the ICU or what a body looks like hooked up to machines in an attempt to sustain life. Except to say what it all really comes down to is the ICU is a place where people are kept alive as their bodies try to die. And as a nurse, Jackie was fully aware that she needed to be intubated and put on a ventilator because her body was dying. And now she had to call her husband and let him know that too. So I call Kirk and we're crying and we're praying and it was so much unknown at that point you say goodbye I could just sense the team was just they were all super worried about me and there were so many people buzzing around me like it wasn't like they were settling me for the night it was the opposite feeling (laughs) and there were so many doctors it wasn't just nurses it was like there was just like 20 people so I knew that it was not going well so it did hit me that, that I may not wake up. The buzz surrounding Jackie in these moments was the team preparing to intubate her. Soon after, her body would be paralyzed with medications and she would be sedated. 
a stiff plastic tube would be inserted through her mouth and into her airway and attached to a machine that would breathe for her for the next eight days. A feeding tube would be inserted through her nose and into her stomach. Three days into her ICU stay, both of her lungs would collapse. The doctors would cut holes in either side of her chest wall with a scalpel and insert plastic tubes attached to a bulky device to reinflate her lungs and prevent them from collapsing again. Jackie would become agitated at times and require physical restraints, which essentially means that they had to tie her hands and feet to the bed, in addition to increasing her doses of sedating medications. While Jackie is incredibly thankful for the amazing, life-saving care she received in the ICU, she describes this time as a total assault on her body. And I have memories of that time. The memories are very traumatic. That's what I would describe it as being in a crazy world where you're in and out of consciousness. And you're not surrounded by humanity and that like compassionate faces. You're surrounded by hazmat suits and like elastomeric masks. And people were actually at the point, some people would avoid eye contact with me. The ventilator, the memories that I have of being ventilated are awful. I'm restrained, like my hands are tied down in the bed. I am wrenching on the tube, like just dry heaving. My whole body is up and down on the bed, just like wrenching because it's down your airway. So you're gagging on it. I'm incontinent. I'm being rolled over. I mean, pushed down. And none of these are, I had incredible healthcare team. They're not like treating me poorly. It's when you're, you know, you're delirious and you're confused. I have memories of people telling me things and voices. Lots of people in the background keep saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because they're like having to push me down or move me or restrain me. And I keep wrenching and, oh, it was awful. And while Jackie lay in the ICU, tied to a bed, attached to tubes and machines, her husband Kirk sat by the phone day and night, waiting. My daughters saw him in total crisis where they hear him crying and, you know, by the phone because it was the separation line. Like the fact that he said it was like a curtain, like he couldn't see me at all. He had no idea when they were going to call. So he's like, you know, at the phone all the time, like, and then he'd call them and wait to hear back. And, you know, it's just, it was just so hard. But the girl's memory of him through that whole time They've made kind of jokes since they're like, man, we could not have survived this life without mom. Like when you went, mom, the house kind of went mental. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, there was no bedtime. I didn't even know when we were supposed to eat. There was just dishes everywhere. And my daughter's like, mom, I remember one time looking at the time, I think it was midnight and no one had told me to turn the TV off. And I was like, girls, your dad is such a capable father he would be fine but that was not him parenting that was crisis parenting after eight restless days of jackie drifting in and out of consciousness eight days of her kids being somewhat left to their own devices and many sleepless nights for her husband kirk jackie woke up i remember very confused waking up in covid cohort icu I was still ventilated at that point. They're waking me up. And I'm like, what has happened? I had no idea where I was. Everyone was in complete hazmat suits. 
uh, no touch, no smiles, nothing. And there was these doctors and they were really looked happy at the end of my bed. There was like five of them. And they were like, you're doing amazing. We're going to get you out of these things and we're going to do this. And I was just kind of like, I was just trying to make sense of it. Like, where was I? What had happened? Despite feeling completely disoriented and confused, the one thing Jackie knew for sure was that she needed to get in touch with her husband and her daughters as soon as possible. They find my phone and it's dead, of course. So this beautiful nurse said, I got to find a charger. She went out, took all off her PPE, got her own charger, brought it into the COVID ICU, plugged it in, got me to about 20%, pinned it to my mattress. That meant the world to me as a patient. And it was really interesting me seeing it from the patient side of like those moments where we kind of feel inconvenient and not priority can actually like transcend my journey. And so I'm too weak to even hold my phone. Like I can't even hold it up. So she gives it to me and she's like, just put the password in. No memory. Like I have no recollect of what my password could be. So this nurse figured it out. She had someone call my husband, had them call me and all this kind of stuff. But we're FaceTiming. I look crazy. Like I look back and my hair is like wet and like I look crazy. They're like, mom, how are you? And Kirk's just like stunned and just so happy. And they're like, how are you? And of course, my little ones are like, have you been sleeping? How have you been sleeping, mom? And I'm like, you know what? Since I've been here, I haven't actually slept one minute. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, hun, I haven't even slept one minute since I've been here. It's so loud. And Kirk's like, hun, you've been on a ventilator for eight days. I'm like, what? I had no idea. <laughs> and he's like, you're in the IC. You've been there for eight days. And he's like, yeah, and you have chest tubes. And they just go, I'm like, what? Like, I'm just, it was insane. And it was just like, I had no idea. While Jackie had zero recollection of her experience immediately after the doctors removed her breathing tube and weaned her sedation, the darkness and trauma of it all slowly came back to her in the days, weeks, and months that would follow. And while still in the COVID ICU, surrounded by people who were also critically ill with COVID-19, the reality of what she had just gone through began to sink in. The night after they took me off the ventilator was a terrible night. Like I, I just, breathing was so hard. Every breath hurt so much. It was so labored. And I, I said to one of my nurses, I'm like, I just need a like break from breathing. Like, and it turns out you can't get a break from breathing, but it was so hard. And I was so weak and I was so scared. All these patients who had COVID all around me proning this man next to me looked like green in color there was and I'm a nurse I can see all their monitors and they're all doing terribly and I'm with them all and then you know everyone's dying around me and no one like it was the craziest experience of my life to my left there was literally a man like proning and like on his stomach and across the way there was like a look like a 30 year old not doing well at all so I had a window to my right and I looked at a tree and it was like the only thing in the entire journey that brought me solace. And I just would look at the tree and it was just blowing in the wind. And it was like the only thing that brought me peace was just like that tree. Okay, so it goes without saying that Vancouverites love their trees. But for Jackie, this tree in particular, standing outside the window of her ICU room, was especially meaningful. 
It was a grounding force amidst the shit show that was Jackie's reality at the time. It was the one thing she could count on to bring her calm amidst the chaos. So she would stare at this tree for hours on end, a little glimpse of life after coming so close to death. Only a few short days after being transferred from the ICU to a medical ward, Jackie was discharged home. And the moment she left the hospital was pure bliss. Oh my gosh. I was wheelchaired out to the car. It was a sunny day and it was fresh and cold and it was April. So I saw Kirk. He just basically picked me up out of the wheelchair and I cried for like 10 minutes when I saw him. All the stuff I'd been holding in kind of just came out. When we got home, the girls had made a path, like a welcoming path for me, little stones with rocks. We love you, mommy. We've missed you so much. You survived. And all these like little love notes up into the door. And then I came in and they cleaned the whole house. Jackie was back. She was back home where she belonged with her girls and Kirk. And it may sound like this is the end of the story for Jackie, but in many ways, it was just the beginning. The physical and emotional backlash of surviving a critical case of COVID-19 is not for the faint of heart. Jackie and her family would continue to heal from this experience for weeks and months to come. I was not in good shape. I was not in good shape at all. I was so short of breath and I so much chest pain. I felt like I was wearing this like tight, heavy vest that I couldn't take off. And it was very unsettling because when you go to sleep, you want your breath to feel effortless, basically. And every breath I felt like I had to concentrate on or it would stop or skip. It would startle me to like, I got to breathe or it's going to stop. And it did that for like weeks. Sleep was work. There was no rest. Jackie's heart, liver, and lungs sustained significant injury from her COVID-19 infection. She had air in the space around her heart, causing severe chest pain, which is a complication of being on a ventilator. Her liver function was severely compromised. Her lungs continued to have permanent scarring. Her blood counts were so abnormal, she was at increased risk of having a stroke and other dangerous and potentially deadly consequences of COVID-19. I had to go back to the hospital for my, I think it was like CT at three months. And I was like, I'm feeling okay, I can do this. And I walked past the gift store and I just like burst into tears. But I phoned my husband. He's like, "Hun, you're in a building that you almost died in three months ago. Normal response. Anyways, I went to that appointment and I thought I got to go find my tree. So I walked outside of Emerge and looked up and kind of walked around BGH and I was like, I knew it. Like I saw my tree and it had leaves. It was green and like blooming. And it was just this beautiful moment. Like I just burst into tears. It had no leaves on it when I was there. It was just kind of this beautiful silhouette blowing, but it was like the one thing that would like help me, like it was there and it saw me and it kind of kept me company in this peaceful way. And so to see it blowing in the wind with green leaves, it just was this like visual sign that nature can teach us about in ourselves and our healing, that it was like, there's life coming back. Yeah, it's really powerful. We often don't hear about the aftermath of surviving a stay in the ICU. And while Jackie remained clinically unwell for many months following her hospitalization, the mental and emotional burden of her experience being critically ill and on a ventilator 
stayed with her well beyond the physical challenges that she faced. My body heals, but my mind takes a lot longer because I still feel like a week was deleted out of my life. And that's very hard. I don't know to grieve it or it's hard to have closure when you don't have awareness of it. It's really hard for me, especially when I keep getting like new memories that come up. You shut your eyes at night and all of a sudden I could see everything again. I could hear everything again. All these nightmares were coming back. So I saw a psychiatrist and she was like, yeah, this is definitely PTSD, Jackie. So we've done, I've done a lot of therapy and um, a lot of work on this. It feels like a cellular heaviness and it's like so heavy. And that's the part you can't really explain to people, but so I just feel like this wound that I'm trying to heal and I'm kind of hovering and protecting it, making sure it doesn't get infected and brew and all these things. And now as I'm healing in my mind, I can step away from this wound and actually not even look at it. Like I'm really like, you're fine. You're going to be good. And I can kind of walk away. But then every once in a while, there's something that comes back and it's like, I'm right back in it. And I'm like looking at it and it's like festering. It's not healed there. And it's something there. And I just kind of have to like hover and kind of protect it again this really weird feeling but when I have these nightmares that come up that's how I feel like it's and you, you can't get distracted out of it it's like you're in it as Jackie describes her experience with post-traumatic stress from her stay in the ICU an experience that is far more common than we appreciate I can't help but acknowledge how much it parallels grief a chronic wound that needs tending to that will hurt and heal in seasons, just like Jackie's tree. A reminder of the natural way life contracts and expands. A reminder of our capacity to grow in spite of our circumstances. My oldest struggled with anxiety all her life, like severe, and she saw me in bed, unable to sleep, because I was so, so anxious. And I'll never forget it my entire life where one night she sat with me and she's like, mom, what works for me when I have this like repetitive thought, it's kind of anxiety creeping, is I go to a, like a place that feels like really peaceful. And I just think of like three things. It's like a mantra and you just keep repeating it to yourself. She's like, what could you say right now, mom? She's like, you are home. You are safe. You know, you are in God's hands. This is what she's said and so then I was just like okay I'm home I'm safe I'm God's hands I'm, I just would repeat that the beauty in all of this is that Jackie had spent years helping her daughter cope with her anxiety and there she was with that same daughter supporting her through her own intrusive thoughts and it speaks to the special way that families can grieve together and heal together when given the space to do so this could have been the most dismantling experience of our lives, but if anything, it's been very unifying. It's been like this joint project that we're all suffering together, but then like actually supporting each other through the healing. And that actually essentially heals you when you help someone else. So it was like we're helping each other heal the whole time. And the girls have learned that you're strong when you share. And honesty takes strength. And they, I tell them where I'm at and they've seen their dad, like they've seen their dad cry and that's love, you know, they've actually seen love, you know, and they've seen me being weak and scared and all these things. And I feel like that, the vulnerability 
I mean, will help them be strong, you know, and courageous. They've learned a lot about compassion and they just realize, well, this is what you do. When someone's suffering, you help them and we all need each other and we can't get through this unless we help each other. I don't think you can teach that unless they kind of experienced it and they have. So it's, that's a beautiful thing for sure. Six weeks after being discharged from the hospital, Jackie finally got the okay from public health to leave her house and break quarantine. And the day I was cleared, I said, I need to get in the car. And we just drove straight down to the beach. And I wobbled, like wobbled to the middle of the beach. And the girls just all hugged me. And I've never seen a sunset like that in my whole life. It was like the world was still there. It was so stabilizing. It was like, I'm going to be okay. Slowly, Jackie would get back to living. She would get back to dancing every night in the kitchen with her girls, to taking in the small joys she sometimes took for granted. She would redefine her life with a new perspective and an appreciation for not just what it means to live, but what it means to live well. My life pre-COVID was so noisy. It was so much going on. And when you face such like critical illness or even death, everything becomes quiet. And the real song that you should be listening to shows up. This was a forced pause on my life. This was literally like God said, stop. (laughs) Took away my voice and my movement and my health and everything. Realized like how disembodied I was living. Like I was so disintegrated from myself. We're always just rushing. And all of a sudden this quarantine hit and it was like forced stillness. And I just realized that stillness and slowness brought a lot to the surface. Just clarity. It's just like the simple pleasures now of life seem so like such gifts. And I know that may seem cliche, but I just have come out of this now just being grateful for those little things that you I can do. You know, my perspective will never be the same. It's completely changed everything for me. Like I want to be forever changed. So I just feel like that's the thing is I don't want to lose that song. As I move into life, I don't want it to like get noisy and get muted again. I want to like get back into that crazy cohort bed and like look at my tree and just think, I made it. It's been nearly a year since the world stood still, since Jackie almost lost her life to COVID-19, since three daughters almost lost their mom, and a devoted husband almost lost the love of his life. In that time, nearly two million people have died from COVID-19, hundreds of thousands in North America alone. They say that a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Sadly, most of us have lost respect for the true meaning of the daily COVID case counts. And I get it. We've been at this game for far longer than anyone anticipated. We are all tired of this pandemic, of the impact it's had on our lives. But stories like Jackie's, well, there are literally millions of stories out there like it. And while we can be so grateful that Jackie made it home, never forget the millions of people in the last nine months who haven't. 
as for the numbers we see every night on the evening news. Each and every one of those numbers corresponds to a life that was lost. Or, as in the case of Jackie, a life almost lost and forever changed. That's it for this month's episode of Talk Dying to Me. A huge thank you to Jacqueline Robinson for sharing her story with us. Jacqueline continues to feel better each day. She's now back at work where she works as a public health nurse doing contact tracing. And she also helps out with a number of post-COVID recovery projects. And get this, she currently works with one of the doctors who saved her life in the ICU. This episode was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. The theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Graphics are by Wiki Turton, and the post-production work was done by the talented team at Resonate Recordings. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what we do, please take a moment to leave a review. For more information on today's episode, check out TalkDyingToMe.com and follow us on Instagram or Facebook at TalkDyingToMe. Our next episode is set to drop Tuesday, February 16th, so stay tuned until then. And don't forget, one day, you're gonna die.